Jesus shows us what a normal human life looks like. I didn't say typical. Jesus was tempted in every way like we are, yet he didn't sin. So he's what humanity is meant to look like. I don't know if this has ever occurred to you, but when Jesus was baptized and goes down into the water and the voice from heaven says, this is my son, you are my son whom I love and whom I'm well pleased. And then he gets out of the water, so he's, he's filled with the spirit. And then he gets out of the water and it says he's led by the spirit into the wilderness I don't know if it's ever occurred to you, but Jesus is taking up the history of God's people and he is walking straight where they walked crooked. So Israel gets called by name as Moses comes and says, God says, I'm a father to you. Come out, come out and worship me. And he leads them through the Red Sea makes covenant with them and leads them through the Red Sea and then walks with them in the wilderness 40 years while they live as slaves even though they're sons. And so Jesus goes through the Jordan River even as they go through the Red Sea and Jesus hears the voice say, you're my son in whom I'm well pleased even as as they hear God speak over them that you're my, Israel is my son. Out of Egypt have I called my son. And so Jesus is in the wilderness with the promise being tested, just like they were in the wilderness 40 years. He was there 40 days. And he walked straight where they walked crooked. And it says at the end of that, it says that Jesus came out of that time in the power of the Holy Spirit. And he immediately begins to disrupt Satan's strongholds all over Palestine. There's this connection between the Spirit coming upon Jesus and him being launched into this kingdom clash. I don't know if that's ever occurred to you. That Jesus, who had a perfect relationship with God his whole life, there was a time when the Spirit came on him in power and it launched him into public ministry. Why? Acts chapter 10, Peter says it this way, You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power and he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil for God was with him. Doesn't say because he's God and he can do what he wants. I'm laboring a point here. And the point I'm laboring is that Jesus did not do his messianic uh, signs. He didn't bring his kingdom of power to push back the devil by simply depending on his innate divinity. I've heard preachers say that. I've read commentaries say that. I've heard church fathers even suggest that. 
Uh, Jesus heals because he's God and he can do what he wants. He walks on water because he's God and he can do what he wants. To which I would ask the question, well, then how did, how did Peter walk on water? How did the disciples heal? And the point I'm making is Jesus actually put off. In Philippians 2, it says that he was in the form of God. He got, everything was created through him. He is divine, but in his incarnation, it says he, he put off his divine rights. And he instead became a human, a weak little baby who had to be fed, who had to be taken care of, had to learn how to do simple things like speak. He had to learn how to pray. He had to do what a true human in right relationship with God does. He had to walk by faith and not by sight. He had to learn to hear God's voice. He had to read and study the scriptures to find out who his father really was and who he really was. He had to be led by the spirit and let the father be the one who was doing the signs of power through the same ways that he would do it through you and I. In other words, he put off his omniscience. Who touched me? He put off his omnipresence. Notice he was constantly having to travel by foot to get to where he wanted to go. He didn't just zap there like Star Trek, which would be so convenient. Beam me up. Thank you. Now beam me back down over there. Excellent. Beam me a sandwich. And, speaking of sandwiches, he put off his omnipotence. He's sitting in John chapter 4, exhausted by the well of Sychar, hoping someone will come soon who has a rope in a bucket because he's thirsty and weary. So how did Jesus do what Jesus did? He did it as a human in perfect right relationship with God. He did it by the power of the Holy Spirit. Notice he doesn't do a single miracle until after he's baptized in the Spirit. Strange to me. And he said himself, I can't do anything. I'll I'll read his words. I tell you the truth, the Son can do nothing by himself. He does only what he sees the Father doing. Whatever the Father does, the Son does. Actually, I remember the man born blind that he, that he heals. I think it's in John chapter 6. He says, hey, listen, we know, we know that Jesus has to be from God because God honors his prayers. That's, an, that's, that's, how, the, that's how the man who was, whose eyes were healed interprets it. Jesus laid hands on me, put, spit in the mud, put it on my eyes. And the Father honored that act of faith, which must have been in dependence with God. Why would the Father honor Jesus if he's not godly, is essentially his argument. And the Pharisees are like, you're stupid too. And, yeah. and here's simply my point. Jesus needed the Holy Spirit in order to do the Father's will. It's, uh, it's caused a lot of controversy in, in church history because we, on the one hand, Jesus is fully divine. He's to be worshipped. When Thomas falls down and says, my, my Lord and my God, post-resurrection, where he says, hey, stop doubting, believe, put your hands here in my scars, feel the side, and he's like, my Lord and my God. Jesus doesn't say, oh, easy killer, only worship God. He accepts that worship. Jesus is divine. Jesus is a part of the, the, the triune God. 
But if that's true, then Tim, why are you saying that he didn't do miracles as God? Well, I'm saying he didn't depend on his unfair advantage as God, but he walked as a full human, and now he's invited us, follow me. The reason we can bring the kingdom, the reason we can, through dependence on him, do his will in this life is because he showed us how and grafts us into his very life. He teaches us what does it look like to have God as your father. And he hands us the baton and says, as the father, this is John 20, as the father sent me, so now I send you. And then he breathed on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. What's the connection? What's the connection between as the Father sent me, so I send you, receive the Holy Spirit? Obviously, the connection is to do what he's sending us to do requires the power of the Holy Spirit. I don't have what I need in myself. Do you? In Luke 24, he says, and I'm going to send the Holy Spirit just as my Father promised. But stay here in this city until the Holy Spirit comes and fills you with power from heaven. I've always loved that. I've always loved him saying, everything's finished except for this. You have not yet been baptized in the Spirit. Now he's saying this to people who are in the kingdom already. They're already in. We would say it this way. They're already saved. So here's someone who's saved, and you can't be saved without the Spirit of God giving you what we call regeneration, new birth in your nature, right? They're they're already born again, but they're not Spirit-baptized yet. I'm laboring this for a reason. The Spirit is in every believer, but that does not mean every believer is currently filled with the Spirit because being filled with the Spirit is not a one-time encounter, but a state. It's a condition. Are you tracking with me today? So Jesus is baptized with the Holy Spirit, and then he was propelled into his kingdom assignment. And the power is for a purpose. Notice he's in the wilderness being tempted and the devil wants to to get him to, to, I would put it this way, to use his special relationship with God's love for selfish purposes. To make it about his name and to make it about his comfort and to make it about his convenience. And Jesus refuses. I've heard about youth groups that are like, Jesus did miracles? We can do miracles. Guys, let's try to walk on water. Ready? Let's go to the pool. This is backyard pool. We're all going to try to walk on water. If Jesus can do it, we can do it. And then they all, of course, fall in because there's literally zero need for that miracle. There's like no kingdom purpose for that miracle whatsoever. Jesus needed food when he was in the wilderness, so to speak. You could put quotes around the word need. He wanted it strongly. But he refuses to try to appeal to his special relationship as God's son for for his own purposes. I read about these uh, islanders that when they got the gospel, they were so consumed with grief and, and compassion for some island neighbors that were a couple of miles away 
And they walked on the water to bring the gospel to their next, next island over people. Now, that's the kind of story that a lot of us are too cor- corrupted by the world to even believe, even though it's totally logical and consistent with what we find in this book all over the place. But that would be power for a divine purpose. Not so that they could be like, did you see what I just did? Oh, yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Because if that youth group walked on the pool, they would all be like, that's what's up, that's what's up. You know what I mean? The gospel promises that those of us who believe in Jesus will have the same power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus had. And interestingly, it could say the same power that Jesus demonstrated in the Gospels, but it actually goes further than that. It makes a stronger point than that. Paul says, I pray you'll understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe him. It's the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead. Like, if you're going to appeal to the miracle, pick the biggest one. He could have said the same power that was empowering Jesus to heal a few blind eyes and cleanse lepers. And... No, he picks the biggest one. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is in you. And I'm praying, I'm praying the Holy Spirit will wake you up. Well, that's interesting. I also noticed that Like in Ephesians 5.19, where Paul says, don't be drunk with wine because that will ruin your life, but instead be filled with the Holy Spirit. The be be filled is is in the present tense. Again, getting born again, being saved, is a moment in time. We cross a line from life to death. And once we cross that line, that moment is actually now in our past. You don't fall in and out of grace. You don't fall in and out of sonship. You don't get saved four times. It doesn't happen. People talk like that, but that's not accurate. You get saved once. But you get filled with the Spirit in the present tense. Paul's saying, be constantly drinking of the Spirit. Don't be drunk with wine. That'll ruin your life. Be constantly drinking of the Spirit because that will bring you into true life. I think that's fascinating to me. So God's Spirit is referred to in a bunch of different ways. Jesus calls, you know, Peter calls it the gift, the promise of the Father. Jesus calls it the gift of God. If you knew the gift of God and who it was, you would have asked him. He would have given you living water. The Spirit is called the comforter, the one who comforts us in our troubles. The Spirit is called the Spirit of truth who will lead you into all truth and remind you of the things that Jesus spoke. The Spirit is the Spirit of truth because Jesus said some things you're not even ready for right now. Your heart's not in the position where you can take it in. But when you're ready, the Spirit of truth will lead you into it. When the time is right, when the conditions are right, he'll, he'll reveal more to you. That's, that's fascinating to me that Jesus is saying, there's a lot of stuff I want to tell you, but it's not time yet, not because I'm hiding anything, but because you're not ready. But the Spirit, he loves to take what is mine and give it to you. And I think my favorite way of describing the Spirit is love poured out. Because when God pours out his spirit, he's not pouring out a substance. He's pouring out a person. He's pouring out his own self. 
And he, in his most essential nature, is love. That's if Romans 5 says that hope doesn't disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Throughout Jesus' ministry, he refers to the Spirit as water. Like a spring of water welling up to eternal life or as rivers of living water that will flow from the innermost being of those who trust Jesus. That's interesting to me because if you look at those metaphors, if you look at the connections Jesus is drawing, it's like all your lives you've been seeking. All your lives you've been, you've been hungering after things. You've been, you've been hungering and you've been thirsting. And, and, and you're, whoever believes in me, the Spirit's going to come and establish you with this love you seek and crave but can't find in such a way that satisfaction in the innermost part of you will come and you will come alive from the inside out and then life will flow out of you and, and transform the area, the people who are in contact with you around you. I love that he doesn't say, you notice when he's, this is John chapter four I'm referring to now. When he's talking to the woman at the well, they're, they're talking about location. Where, where, do we, where are we supposed to come to worship? Well, you Jews say Jerusalem's the place we're supposed to worship. We worship here on this mountain. And Jesus says the time's coming when none of that's going to matter. The true worshiper is going to worship in spirit and in truth. And in John 7, he says, whoever's hungry, whoever's thirsty, let him come to me. And whoever believes in me from his innermost being will come. Come to me. It's not a location. It's a person. And it doesn't say that the conditions will be, like, we kind of get this mindset that like, all right, st- short story. I spent a week in this revival environment being trained for how to uh, heal the sick and some other things. A fantastic week. One of the most spirit-filled weeks of my life. And when I came home, I was still so drunk with God, so just like overwhelmed with the physical manifestation of his presence all over me and, and the hope and the love and the joy and I'm sitting there describing some stuff to Carrie, and I all of a sudden have this, this glimmer of fear rise up in me that says, what if it fades? I'm in this environment where all day, every day, it's worship and prayer and the most incredible teaching and watching people just get healed right in front of my eyes. It's, it feels like, oh, do I have to leave and get back to regular life? Yeah, of course you do have to get back to regular life. Duh, because the purpose of this is regular life. But then I get back to regular life, and I'm going, man, is it going to fade? And immediately when that fear hit me of, is it going to fade, the Spirit said to me very, very, very quickly, like right away, fan into flame the gift that is in you. You're thinking I'm out there, and you have to go get me in an environment. I'm telling you I'm in here, and the environment stirred me up in you. And you can get stirred up here because you carry me. Whoever believes in me, let him come to me. Where's Jesus now, now that he's exalted? He's everywhere. And rivers of living water, springs from your innermost being. Now that's an interesting idea. So sometimes the problem is not we don't have the spirit. Sometimes the problem is that we don't know how to let him out. I also see this connection between the spirit and sonship. For Jesus, 
God's Spirit is connected with this, the, the coming of the Spirit on Jesus is connected immediately with, you are my son. I'm pleased with you. I love you. That's the message. It's, this, it's him in face-to-face relationship with Abba, and the love of the Father is now rooting him in this identity that creates a mission, and it needs to root him in this mission because as soon as you go into this clash with the enemy, resistance, counterattack, character assassination, misunderstanding, and conflict mark his life from the first day he sets foot back in his hometown and starts preaching till he finally gets killed. Conflict and resistance and identity assassination are are the dominant themes of what's coming against him every single day. Which means if he doesn't have a strong rootedness in this word of the truth about the father's affection and his identity in it, then this will break him. This will back him down. This will be a, this will be a snare that is innate, that innate, that gets him stopped. He won't make it past for the first day. He stands up in his hometown and he starts to read from the place in Isaiah where it says, "The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me." Because the Lord's appointed me to preach good news to the poor, proclaim recovery of sight to the blind, uh, release to the prisoners, right? Gospel is going to be preached. Justice, liberty, freedom. It's the day of the, it's it's the year of Jubilee. It's the year of Jubilee. And they go, oh my word. And all speak highly of him for a moment until he opens his mouth and does the thing Jesus almost always does because he's not very nice. He's really mean if you read the Gospels carefully. If, we had a, if I had two more hours, I would just walk you through the Gospel of John and show you how mean Jesus is. Consistently. Consistently, he doesn't care how you feel. He cares how you are. Like, he doesn't flatter you. He'll go, you go, Jesus, come have dinner with me. And then he's like, why are you so addicted to money? Also, human traditions. And you're lost. And then the other guy stands up and says, you know, you offended us when you said that too. And he says, oh yeah, you're even worse. I'm not kidding. It's Luke 11, the, the, the last half of Luke 11. It's craziness up in there. And it's consistent throughout Jesus' ministry. Where, how, does he care, how does he not care what you think enough to tell you what, what you need to hear so that if you actually receive what he has to say, you'll get free? Because again, he's less concerned with how you feel and more concerned with how you are. How did he get so bold? How did he get so brave? How did he love enough to engage and even initiate conflict with people who don't want free? It all comes back to the baptism of the Spirit, that he knows who he is and whose he is. So the Spirit is associated with sonship and God's love for him, which is what propels and initiates and causes him to be able to go all the way to the cross without backing down, buckling under pressure, and giving up. We're encouraged to ask and seek and knock. Jesus encourages his disciples to ask for the Holy Spirit, to seek, to knock, specifically indicating that his followers would always be. That's the way that little passage ends. It says, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to his his ones that are day and night always crying out for the Holy Spirit? That's interesting. So it's not unusual, it's not, it's not incorrect, it's not unbiblical to be constantly crying out for more Holy Spirit. What it is is an awareness that I'm weak and he's not. 
I think sometimes we think that if we were filled with the Spirit, we wouldn't be tempted anymore. That's not true. I think sometimes we think that if we were filled with the Spirit, we wouldn't feel afraid anymore. I don't believe that's accurate. I think sometimes we think that if we were filled with the Spirit, our relationships would be a lot easier. I'm not sure that's true either. Jesus' relationships were harder because he was filled with the Spirit and surrendered to pleasing the Father instead of pleasing people. There are things he didn't sweep under the rug that we could sweep under the rug for the sake of peacekeeping because peacemaking and peacekeeping aren't the same thing. I think sometimes we think that if we were filled with the Spirit, we'd be less aware of our sins. And sometimes the Spirit loves to expose our sins to us, and and it's not a pretty sight. Sometimes the light of His love comes along with an awareness, and that awareness is difficult to handle. Not always, but sometimes. The same Spirit that comforts also exposes Sometimes we look for signs of the Holy Spirit at work that are far too dramatic and explosive and immediate in their change. We think if God comes, it'll be evident to everyone. Well, who said? Who said it will be evident to everyone? I think sometimes we look for dramatic signs, like sometimes that happens. And and, and dramatic signs are always welcome, but that's not always how it happens. Sometimes the, the work of God's Spirit isn't very outwardly obvious or dramatic. And life itself, like all of life, is already inherently spiritual. A string theory, I don't know if you guys know this. String theory, one of the things I love about that is, believes that essentially all matter is just energy tuned to different frequencies. Or, to put it the way I like it, matter is music. So Jesus can tune his body the right way and walk through a wall. Colossians says Jesus holds all things together by his word of power. He holds all things together by his word. That means everything's already spiritual. Everything's already spiritual. Everything cries holy day and night. And God is already actively present in all places and times. Sometimes we, we think God's at work in everyone's life to try to lead them to Jesus so that they can go to heaven and not hell. That's true, but it's so much, so much more than that. God is not just fixated on one tiny little agenda of get people saved. He's love. He's intelligent, profound, compassionate, warm love. And at the heart of the existence of the nature of this universe is love. Love that's indwelling and upholding like every molecule in the universe and making God's kingdom completely available to everyone right now, immediately. And the world has fallen, so most of us don't think that way. Most of us don't walk into every circumstance with that awareness that this present moment, right here and now, is God's already active in, in subtle but real ways, and I'll just part, I can just partner with him and bring the kingdom. But that was the awareness that Jesus lived with. I want to talk about flow states real quick. Um, you know when you're working really, really productively or you, you, you get a really good idea and, and you've got to quit, get it out before you lose it? And if you grab the pen fast enough and you, like the idea just keeps coming and, and you can go with it? Or if you're working on a project and an idea comes to you and you go, oh my word, and you suddenly make the connections? Or if you're an athlete, when you just can't miss We call that flow. 
And I've studied that a lot because I'm interested in creativity, because I'm interested in maximizing my productivity for Jesus. And I, that sounds silly, but I'm totally serious. Eddie Van Halen says, I don't write the music. Anybody who says they wrote the music is, well, actually, he cusses here. He says they're full of something. And he says, the music doesn't come from me. It comes through me. It comes to me. And anyone who takes credit for it is a complete idiot. And I was like, Eddie, you're on it. What Eddie's talking about is you can get yourself into a, a state of openness where you can hear, you can tune yourself to a kind of frequency where creativity happens. It's, it's not as mystical as it sounds since we all experience it. Time changes when you're in a flow state. You don't work very hard when you're in a flow state, even if you're sweating. When in sports we say they're on fire or they're in the zone or they're feeling it tonight. Or they have a hot hand, something like that. And you could teach a whole sermon on like the whole idea of like you've got to show up and put in the work for those things to occur and for you to capitalize on them more, more often, right? Success is usually the nexus of a lot of discipline and opportunity, not just luck. But my theory on this is that Jesus lived in a kind of state of flow. He found a way to relax into it. Because anxiety kills flow state. Fear kills flow state. People talk about that Zen moment and being living in the present and, and visualizing and all this kind of stuff to hijack the way the brain works to, to get in flow. And Jesus was in this place of divine love and this place of not straining and not striving and in this place of seeing and, and perceiving to where he was bringing the best of his artistry to loving well, to praying well. I, I just sort of picture him living in this flow state that Eddie Van Halen talked about. Sometimes it's fun to be me because you can say things like that in church. Okay. Each of us is unique, and, that, and Jesus has this perfectly fitting life of what it looks like for you to be filled with the Spirit. There's this... There's this there's this life he's created you for, what it looks like when you're filled with the Spirit. And one thing I love about uh, a church tradition that, that it, it believes in the coming of the Spirit and power and believes in miracles is that we seek for those things. That's very helpful and very good. One thing that's not helpful is when we then put cookie-cutter boxes around what it has to look like. Because now, if the Spirit comes on, on you and gives you just this peace. And then you look around the room and somebody else is just like loud when the Spirit comes on them. You're, you're going, why isn't the Spirit on me? Or if he comes on you and breathes gentle wisdom on a, a verse of Scripture and you're going, that's really meaningful. But over here, someone is like, sharing Jesus with strangers and like they're getting saved and you're going, why am I not spiritual? Am I making sense? Jesus has this life that he's designed you to live that when you're filled with the Spirit, it's going to look like you. It's not going to look like them. It's not going to look like some other denomination. It's not going to look 
Like anything other than you motivated by love. It'll be fulfilling. It'll be fitting. Like Abba has this white stone with a name known only between you and him. And there's something so sacred about that, that connection between you and him, that private connection between you and him. There's something so sacred about it that he doesn't even want anyone else to know. And it's that secret place that no one else gets in on that actually creates the flow of life to you that everyone around you gets in on. So I would kind of encourage us to pray to stop comparing ourselves to others and, and pray to start noticing God at work. Pray to stop comparing and pray to start noticing. God, what are you doing here? The life of being filled with the Spirit doesn't have to look like anybody else. Our little tiny boxes don't help. If you happen to be robustly expressive and outward and charismatic, awesome, do that. Don't, don't, don't be embarrassed about that. Don't hide that. Uh, Brian Hibbs has been extremely helpful for me when he said, don't ever apologize for what the Holy Spirit is doing. Because that has been my nature. I've been somewhat embarrassed. Like if I'm on an airplane and the electrical currents of the Spirit starts to flow through me and I start to twitch a little bit, uh, which has happened to me ever since 2012, um, when I prayed for more and got more, um, then I get embarrassed and I'm like saying things to Jesus like, not here, what are you doing? So I'm telling him that that's a bad witness. That's weird. But it was Brian Hibbs who says, Tim, Tim don't, don't do that. Don't, don't, don't apologize for what's God. So I don't want you, if you're outwardly expressive and you're, I don't want you to be unduly apologetic or embarrassed about that. And if you're not outwardly expressive, I don't want you to be thinking somehow you're not valid. Be you. Be you. All that matters in this thing of the Spirit is for you to come into that intimacy that the Father had with, has with Jesus that Jesus invites us into. That's what matters. That's the essence of it. The essence of it is the intimacy of being the children of God, empowered by love in all of life. That's what this thing of the gift of God is about. It's about love. That's what passages like Romans 5, Romans 8, Galatians 4, and Matthew 4, and there's so many others. It's what makes God no longer a doctrine. It makes God real. And so it makes God your father, not our father. It's when Jesus says, I'm going to my God and your God, my father and your father. Little details like that matter. It's one thing to know Jesus died for me like as a logical fact. It's another thing to know those things as personal realities, personal truths. And the Holy Spirit comes to take the objective truth and make it subjectively powerful in our experience. Sometimes we try to become spiritual. But we're already surrounded by God's spirit like fish in the water. It's not about becoming spiritual. It's about becoming aware. 
I could say it this way. You're already spiritual, so relax. Relax into him. Relax into who Jesus has made you. Relax into his love and let him reveal the real you. You're already more empowered than you realize. It doesn't mean there's no more you can receive, but the way you will receive it is to relax into it. Final point on being weak. Sometimes we need to be reminded that our weakness is not a sign of not being faithful. Sometimes we need to be reminded that our weakness, our openness to being, our, 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 our capacity to be tempted is not a sign of failure or unfaithfulness. Being empowered, being loved, being right in the middle of God's will doesn't mean not being tempted. It doesn't mean not feeling weak. It doesn't mean not feeling weary. It doesn't mean not feeling small. Jesus, in the last week of his life, sounds weary, sounds weak, sounds scared. And Jesus, in the last week of his life, and in, in the last, especially on Good Friday, it doesn't get any more weak than that. And yet, Jesus in the cross is more of a revelation, a more clear, let's put it that way, a more clear revelation of God than his signs and wonders. Jesus dying on the cross is what God looks like when he flexes his muscles. So if that's true of him, there are probably seasons and moments, decisions in your life and in my life where the thing that requires the most power of the Holy Spirit is to embrace and walk in a path of weakness and death. Jesus said, if a single kernel of wheat remains alive, it remains alone. But if it falls to the ground and dies, it'll multiply and become many. He was talking about himself. He was like, I've got to embrace this cross. This is where the Spirit is leading me. This is, this is my greatest manifestation of what it is looks like to be empowered by the Spirit. The power to love is the greatest power. And love dies on a cross. It doesn't look powerful, but the courage required to do it, the courage required to, be, to have your reputation completely decimated, to have them punch you in the face and say, prophesy, who hits you? To have Pilate stand there and act like he has the authority to render judgment on you, the judge of all. The power that Jesus was walking in is the power to not, to not defend yourself, to not need to vindicate yourself, 
to not protect yourself. That requires a heavier dose of Holy Spirit love and spitting on the ground and rubbing mud in someone's eyes, which, Lord, may we all, may we all heal the blind. So I end with this. May not look powerful, but that kind of courage is what's needed to love well. And we love because, why? So the Holy Spirit comes to communicate God's love for us. You know why these Protestants have this thing called the daily quiet time? It's not so we check a box and do our religious duty. The daily quiet time is a time when you get alone with God and receive his love. That's it. Period. The end. Your quiet time is for you to get alone with God's truth and let this truth completely transform who you are and satisfy your deep yearning to be loved and to belong and to have meaning and have value. That's the strength of our life. Go ahead and stand. John chapter 7. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me. And are you thirsty? Are you weary? Are you feeling weak and vulnerable? Do you need some power to love well? Do you need courage? If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Prayer team, come on up. Should I just finish out in prayer? Yeah, yeah. If you want prayer, like I want prayer, uh, please come up at the end. So let's, here's your benediction. Holy Spirit, we invite you. We invite you into the, the thirsty places of our life. We invite you into the hungry places of our life. Uh, we say, if the Lord Jesus needed you, oh my word, we need you more. We say, if the Lord Jesus said, I can't do anything without the Father, oh my word, we need you more. And thank you, God, it's your pleasure, it's your delight to pour out your spirit on us, your children. It's your delight to give us the Holy Spirit to drink. It's your delight to speak words of life that empower us to love well. So we say, we invite you. Open our eyes. Free us from comparison to others. Make us aware of your presence and let us drink deeply of your spirit that your kingdom would come. God's people said,